Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, we have a very special guest. His name is Jack Goldstone, and he wrote a book. The first edition was in 1991. There's a newest, newest edition, 2016. Title of the book is Revolution and Rebellion in the Early Modern World, Population Change and State Breakdown in England, France, Turkey, and China, 1600 to 1850. Really a fascinating book. Read through it uh, yesterday and today. Uh, Professor Goldstone is the Virginia E. and John T. Hazel, Jr., Chair Professor of Public Policy at George Mason University and a Global Fellow of the Woodrow Wilson International Center. Previously, Dr. Goldstone was on the faculty of Northwestern University and the University of California and has been a visiting scholar at Cambridge University and the California Institute of Technology. He has been a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study at Stanford University and has won fellowships from the MacArthur Foundation, the J.S. Guggenheim Foundation, the U.S. Institute of Peace, and the American Council of Learned Societies. His Twitter is J-G-O-L-D-S-T-O or J Goldstow at Twitter. So if you want to reach out to him, he's also written other books. One's titled Revolutions, Theoretical, Comparative, and Historical Studies from 2002. Also, Why Europe? The Rise of the West in World History, 1500 to 1850, published 2007. And Revolutions, a very short introduction, published in 2014. And again, his name is Jack Goldstone. Title of the book, Revolution and Rebellion, Rebellion in the Early Modern World. So, Dr. Goldstone, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Glad awesome. to be with you today, Wayne. Great. Thanks. Thanks for uh, agreeing to the interview. You have a lengthy background, CV. Can you talk kind of about your academic interest and what led you to write Revolution and Rebellion in early in the early modern world? Yeah, it'd be a, be a pleasure. Um, I've actually been interested in the topic of revolution uh, even before I got my PhD. When I was in college, I was struggling, as many people are today, asking the question, why do governments uh, do so many dumb things? It seemed odd to me in the 70s that we were putting a lot of money into an anti-missile system that a lot of my scientist friends said wasn't going to work. Um, and so I started looking at why do governments um, make mistakes, given that they should have access to the best advisors, they have enough money to purchase all the expertise they need, so presumably they have an interest in succeeding, and yet they often fail. And then I thought, well, what's the most spectacular incidence of a government failing? And that's obviously when it gets overthrown or collapses uh, in a revolution. So it's kind of like, you know, test to destruction. <laughs> you want to see the ultimate situation where government goes wrong. So I started studying revolutions and asking kind of questions that seemed like, uh, what is behind a revolution? What's behind the collapse of a government? What does it have to screw up so badly that it can't even stay in power, especially, as I said, when it starts with all these advantages. You know, the best experts, the elites are on its side, uh, unlimited borrowing capacity and funds. Um, and so it was a little hard to figure out, especially since there were three different trends at the time in history that were going against me. Um, as we know very well, academics is prone to faddish belief. You know, we have ways of getting caught up in things like Oh, critical race theory, everybody has to follow that. Or Marxism, everybody has to follow that. But when I was working this out, there were three trends in the history books um, and among scholars that were working against me. One was the infatuation with Marxism, you know, the belief that these great historical forces were driving things and that revolutions were a 
transition from some Marxist stage like feudalism to capitalism or capitalism to socialism. Uh, so that kind of big materialist macro view was one. Pushing back against that was the cultural view, saying, you know, historical change is all about great ideas and great transitions, whether it's uh, the Enlightenment uh, or the uh, rise of a kind of absolutist state idea. Um, and so you had the materialists who were Marxists and the culturalists pushing against each other. And I also have to say, people kind of stuck within a narrow framework. That is, national history was dominant. You were a French historian, then you studied the French Revolution, and all of your expertise was going to be on France for a 50-year period from, say, 1739 to 1789. If you studied Napoleon, that was a different group of people. And gosh, if you studied England and the English Revolution of the 17th century, you could spend a lifetime without talking to people who studied the French Revolution. So I was coming at this as, wait a minute, I just, you know, I, I actually trained at one point as a physicist. I just want to get the data and see what's going on. Maybe figure out a pattern in the data that gives us a clue um, and is not caught up in these things. So I started looking at data on uh, countries that were going into revolution. And I looked at uh, countries wherever they were. I looked at Japan before the Meiji. I looked at England before the Great Puritan Revolution. I looked at France before the Great French Revolution, Russia before the Great Russian Revolution. And I tried to figure out what were they all doing wrong in a sense. And I found the patterns were uh, could be documented. So uh, to make it straightforward for your readers, um, four different things seemed consistent. One, governments got into financial problems. As I said, I started out thinking that, oh, governments are rich, they can borrow. Um, it turns out they can only borrow up to the point at which they lose the confidence of their lenders. So if you have a government that gets into excessive debt and the bondholders don't want to honor the debts, a government can get into trouble in a real hurry. All of a sudden, people start running away from it rather than toward it, right? All the debates we're having in America now about the debt limit and all of that, you know. It's right. Well, uh, it's interesting you say that because <laughs> I'm reading the book thinking this book is perfect for today. Debt limit, <laughs> elite fighting with each yeah. other, which you can get into. And I was like, wow, this is like you're relaying the blueprint for current America. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, to it's, interrupt, it's a bit scary, but let's do the history first and then we'll, we'll catch up to where we are today. But anyway, all of these great, you know, like the French government played a key role in helping the American uh, revolution become a success. Uh, the French government sent Navy, sent military. It was a joint French-American operation that led to Cornwallis's uh, surrounding and surrender at Yorktown. <clears throat> but that was very expensive for the French to send expeditionary forces uh, everywhere they needed to go. So the French borrowed a lot of money. Uh, they borrowed so much money, they had to borrow from their own uh, wealthy French, uh, the nobility and the elite. And they had to borrow from Swiss financiers and a lot of other people. They came up with creative games to raise money. Sound familiar, right? They, they, they uh, you know, raised money off life insurance contracts and other things. Anyway, by the time the 1780s came around, about a decade after the war ended, uh, the nobility were starting to say, the war's been over. We're not going to pay the taxes that support these debts anymore. Uh, the Swiss uh, and other financiers were saying, uh, I don't think we have enough guarantees anymore. 
and the French basically ran up against their own debt limit. They found out they needed to borrow money to keep the government going, and um, borrowers weren't willing to lend at anything like reasonable rates to turn over the existing debt. So the French government felt, well, I guess you know we're going to have to redo the tax system to get the revenues to pay our debts. And that's what led to the calling of the Estates General and everything unraveled from there. But this was quite common. When governments get into financial trouble, that's a precursor of, of revolution. But right. that's not the only, Sorry, please only, continue. Please continue. Yeah, not the only thing required. Because if the elites could all agree, oh yeah, we need a new tax system, we'll pay higher taxes and we'll put the government back on a good financial foundation, you're out of trouble. For revolution, the elites have to be so divided that they can't even agree among themselves to take the steps that are necessary to restore strength to the country. And so these elite divisions don't come out of nowhere. They generally come out of some decades of changes in the economy that steer the benefits of the economy in new directions and benefit narrow groups. So, you know, you might have landowners, you might have uh, urban merchants, but instead of kind of sharing the way they used to, uh, one group gets an advantage in the economy and that makes the others resentful and the divisions go from there. And then the last element that occurs in revolution is some large portion of the population is not doing as well as they expected to. Now, you know, in, in early modern times, people didn't expect three or 4% economic growth per year. They couldn't even measure it. They just knew if they were uh, able to support their families or not, if their tax burden was manageable or not, if they were getting squeezed. Uh, but what we can see now in hindsight is that periods when real wages were stagnant or declined, and when the rents for farms and housing were going up and getting out of reach of people, you had enough popular anger that elite divisions could pull people out of their homes and farms and into the streets to follow revolutionary leaders. So these three elements, debts, extreme elite polarization and inability to agree, and enough popular anger to follow dissident elites, that's when you get these revolutionary changes. And the reason governments can't resist, they don't have the money to pay off supporters, they don't have the elite support to get through the crisis, and then they can't manage the popular uprisings that occur, which scare people and create further problems. Yeah, and you, you opened the preface with the whole story of King Louis and whether what was happening in 1789 was a revolt or a revolution. I think that's important because probably a lot of these leaders, American Revolution, Puritan Revolution, they just thought this is a temporary revolt when in fact it was a radical change in current government. Well, the difference between revolt and revolution is pretty straightforward. In a revolt, people are saying, we're pissed. We're unhappy the way things are going. We want to change. In a revolution, you actually have elites. They may be religious elites. They may be political leaders. They may be military leaders making the argument that the system is not only in trouble, it is so bad, so flawed that it can't be fixed and we need something new. So the idea in the French Revolution was at first, yeah, we can try and fix the monarchy. We can try and fix the tax system. But at the meetings of the third estate, once it was clear there was no way that the aristocrats and the members of the commoners, the third estate, were ever going to agree, the third estate leader said, 
this whole monarchy aristocracy thing, it's just not going to work anymore. We're going to have to do it ourselves. And we're going to have to get the king to follow the rules that the commoners lay down. And that's going to be the way it is. And, and the king went along with it for a year or two, hoping he could get by. But when he realized, you know, this is hopeless, and he and the queen tried to get out and uh, get help from Austria and leave the country, they were captured, they were brought back, put on trial. And that's when the revolution became the end of monarchy in France, at least for that period. So things can radicalize quickly once a revolution starts because it exposes all of the weaknesses of the old regime. Right. So the, the, these regimes were tottering on financial instability. They overborrowed. These new groups come in. And I'm sure that was the same thing in England, too, with the Puritan Revolution. I mean, the king probably didn't know what his final end would be up against Cromwell. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, overconfidence among the elites is another key element. If people really appreciate the danger they're in and are willing to say, you know, uh, doing the same thing with just a little tweaking is not working, we're really going to have to be, you know, radical, do something different. Uh, that's how you avoid these major crises. Um, I've looked at places that looked like they were on the way to revolution, but didn't quite go there. And what you see is a willingness of the elites to be far more flexible. So in the 1830s, when there were revolutions in France and Germany and so on, in Britain, there were big, massive demonstrations in the streets. Uh, there were big fights in the parliament with sharp elite divisions. There were concerns about how to manage the economy in a new industrializing world. And it looked for a while like they were going to have a revolution in, in England, too. But the reason they didn't is the leaders of parliament sat down and said, um, we're either going to get thrown out or we're going to cut a deal. And indeed, the king threatened the conservative leader, the Duke of Wellington, the hero of the Napoleonic Wars. He told Wellington, if you're not willing to make a deal, I want you to resign. And Wellington resigned and the new leader, Lord North, came in and they hammered out what they called the first reform bill. And this reform bill didn't solve everything, but it was a huge radical change for the elites to say, we're going to open up the political process to a lot of the ordinary British men who have been protesting in the streets and who are working in the factories and who are telling us that they feel left out and screwed by the existing political system. We have a better chance to survive if we make a deal with them than if we just put a lid on it. Right. So you see some of those adjustments that uh, are kind of like uh, releasing the pressure of a possible revolution. So you see this maybe in like Russia, too, and uh, the earliest part of the 20th century with the creation of the Duma, which didn't work out that well. But these are attempts to try to negotiate with uh, what uh, these heterodox groups that are against the current elite or the current king. Um, so what, uh, you know, when you have these these things, I mean, you're saying that when these changes come, they're not purely based upon class, like the Mar like you argue in your book. It's not purely class-based changes, right? Yeah, you know, if people oversimplify to say, oh, it's the rich versus the poor, and the poor rise up because they're angry. Well, the poor have always been with us, as our Lord Jesus has said, and um, there'd be revolutions throughout history. Even Trotsky said, you know, if it was just a matter of poor people being angry, we'd have revolutions every week because that's how unfair the world is. Um, and, and we see in revolutions, 
um, it's often a single family might have two sons, one who is on the revolutionary side, the other who is conservatively supporting the leadership. So it's a lot more complicated than just rich versus poor. What it usually comes to is a sense of injustice where you have some people who are, even if they're doing fairly well, they might be kind of, you know, rising middle class, but they feel the system is now stacked against them and that they're being unfairly pushed back or held back. Uh, and on the other hand, you have people who are kind of conservatives and say, hey, the status quo works great for me. Don't change it. Don't listen to these people who are yelling and shouting in the street. They're just troublemakers. Ignore them and just keep doing what you're doing. It worked for the last 300 years. It'll work for the next 300. It's a delusion, but you can see it's easy to fall into. Right. So, so you, no, please continue. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, so it's true that you have before revolutions, you have growing inequality, but it's not that the inequality suddenly sets the poor against the rich. It's that the inequality starts to interfere with the economy working smoothly. You start to get wealth piling up in certain areas and draining away from others. And that leads to debates about what's going on. Some people might say, oh, the poor, they're lazy. They need religion. They need discipline. Uh, other people might say, oh, no, the rich are being greedy. We need to change the rules so the rich don't benefit. And then once you have these arguments over how do we fix the problem, you either see a deal made that really upsets the status quo because people are daring and they're willing to do wild things. Like even Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 30s, faced with this Great Depression, you know, the uh, Herbert Hoover was, don't change anything. We have a great system. Just let the pain run through the system. It'll be good for us. And then FDR came in and said, no, this is horrible. We have people out of work, starving. We have to do anything possible to change it. Let the government spend like never before. Let's maybe change the Supreme Court if we have to. Uh, let's do things that maybe were inconceivable before because that's what we need. If that way of thinking triumphs, you can have a set of reforms that avoid the buildup of revolution. And people forget in the 1930s in the United States uh, how scary it was. You know, we had Father Coughlin uh, trying to create a, a white nationalist uh, ideology for the United States. Uh, you know, we had fears about uh, do we fight for freedom in Europe or do we stay isolated in our own house? Uh, it was a, a dangerous crunch time. And fortunately, the, uh, you know, the kind of radical progressive wing of the Democratic Party under FDR got enough done to position the United States to recover from the Depression and lead the world in World War II. Right. So you see this active involvement of those elites agreeing to certain policies that forestalled any type of current revolution. Well, in your book, you talk a lot about demographics. What's the demographic influence upon these revolutions and rebellions? Well, as I said, you know, you see these things going on, governments getting into debt, elites being divided, people suffering from falling wages and stagnation. And then you say, OK, well, why does this happen? And especially why would it happen the same way in England in 1640s and France in 1780s and Russia in the uh, 19, early 1900s and China in 1911? even in Turkey uh, in the 17th century. And it turns out throughout history, if you look across countries, if you break down these kind of national silos and say, let's do global history, 
let's really do world history in a serious way, that there have been waves of revolution separated by waves of stability. You know, people have looked around the world today and say, gee, what, why is there such a kind of authoritarian populism catching on in so many places? Isn't that weird? I could understand why in one country, or not, but you know, what, what is it with you know, Brexit and Trump and Orban and Duterte and all these guys? Well, if you look further back in history, it's the same feeling with revolutions versus stability. You say, you know, why were there revolutions in 1848 all across Europe? Why was the Arab Spring all across North Africa? Right. right. right? So we now know that if you look at history globally, and I think, you know, my book was uh, one of the first to really make this argument. If you look at world history, periods of revolution come about in waves. And what drives those waves is a pattern of population changes. That sounds weird. And it sounded so weird to people at the time. It was almost like you know, uh, telling the geologists that the continents are moving and spreading apart. It was like bizarre and impossible to believe for a long time until the evidence piled up. And I spent a lot of time, I have to say, trying to pile up the evidence because people simply did not connect population change with political change. I mean, nowadays, I, I'm happy to say, you know, when people talk about the Arab Spring, they say, oh, all those young people who are out of work. Right. It's almost right. a commonplace. Uh, but at the time I was doing this between the Marxists and the cultural theorists and the national silos, there were only a handful of scholars who I could find who had entertained the idea that global population trends actually matter for global politics. Right. But, you know, and it, to, to be fair, it's not like it's a simple one-to-one -one issue. It's not like, oh, the population grows, it makes people unhappy, and they start to fight. Nothing like that at all. People actually um, like to live in big cities, right? You know, people get along living close together. Um, to understand how this operates, it's a question of how do economic and political institutions absorb new generations of human beings. Because when you think about a government or a society, think about it, over, you know, over 30 or 40 years, children are born, parents get old and die, and you somehow have to fit this turnover of the population into actual positions in the economy and society. You've got to recruit the right number of leaders to whatever your elites are, business, political, military, you have to train the right number of people for skilled work. You have to get the right number of farmers in the fields. You have to get a balance between the taxes that they pay and the income they need to support their families. There are a lot of balances that have to be maintained between the number of people, the opportunities in the economy, the resources of government, and the right number of leaders. If you have too many people competing for leadership positions, you get polarization and conflict among the elites. If you have too many workers looking for work, you get a stagnation or decline of wages. If you have too many farmers looking for land, you get an increase in the price of rents or housing. And if the government is trying to tax people while paying for armies that are larger than ever because everybody's got a growing population and they're trying to recruit soldiers to have an advantage over their neighbors, but it's a game that everybody's playing, 
your expenses go up. And if your expenses go up faster than your tax revenues, you're headed into debt. And that's the cycle that we talked about at the beginning of our talk. And there it is. I mean, sorry, please continue. Yeah, no, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say the Arab Spring is something that recent, but you do see this overturn and you talk about how revolutions happen when the people are younger as opposed to older and more willing to uh, endure whatever travails therein. So, I mean, and I saw like the, uh, the Arab Spring, many of those people who went into government offices were like 25, 30 years old <laughs> after they kicked the old people out, at least in Tunisia, which I looked into. And it was interesting because it fits right into your model. There was an injustice that happened with one seller out of, you probably know the story, but one seller of like uh, agricultural goods got burned or something happened and it just started that whole revolution, revolutionary uh, impetus. And really the same thing happened, old elites at fighting, money, really fascinating. And it kind of goes into your book too, because you talk about Fukuyama, end of history. Yeah, no, the, the history is not ending. This process is going to continue, I would definitely think. Yeah, would you? Well, yeah. well, I hope that when people read my book, they say, oh, I didn't know all that was happening in France or all that was happening in England or that the same things were happening in Turkey and China. That's That's really cool. But I also hope they'll say, oh, and I also see echoes of that in the Arab Spring and in the global wave of populism. So that, oh, you know, history actually continues. It's not like we're living in a different world and history is on another planet. The history of our societies, you know, we're all human beings. We're still looking for the same type of satisfactions and future that human beings have sought throughout history. I mean, the purpose of government, after all, is to give us a feeling that we're secure and that there's order in the world. And when you get population growth in a way that institutions don't easily absorb, it undermines those feelings that, oh yeah, we have a secure future, we're confident, uh, we know where we belong in the social system. Now, things like you know waves of immigration or a, a baby boom that creates lots of young people looking for jobs or a surge in the number of highly educated people that triggers a lot of competition for elite positions. Throughout history, these things have occurred and they've tended to have the same effects. Right. You talk about like even in the Ottoman Turks, there were certain waves of people going into government offices or getting higher degrees. The same thing was happening all over uh, the world, at least in the Western world, too, in France. So it was very interesting to kind of I never really had, had considered that. But you, you definitely know, see these waves, these patterns. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that's fascinating is how every society encounters similar problems, but interprets them in their own way. So that in the 17th century, when uh, King Charles was starting to have these problems of debt and conflict between the um, older established families that became cavaliers and the up and coming families that were uh, drawn to Puritan beliefs and when the uh, growth of London created conflicts between the London economy and, and the rural land areas. The way the British interpreted this, because their lens for understanding reality was uh, the Christian religion and the conflict between Catholicism and the Pope and the Protestant uh, church in England, they said, well, the problem here is that the king and his family and his ministers are too Catholic. They're they're too close to the Thirty Years' War and they're fighting with the Catholic monarchies in Spain. And even if they're trying to help the Protestants, 
you know, I, I think the wife, the king's wife seems to have Catholic sympathies and the uh, Episcopal church is still kind of with its bishops is still too top heavy. And um, the way they saw reaching an authentic English voice was through Puritanism. And so it became known as a Puritan revolution because Puritanism was seen as the, the true uh, religion of the book, the kind of biblical, good, honest, uh, Anglo-Saxon English approach. Um, and that was the new identity that the revolutionaries wanted to create that would make England the kind of the promised land and uh, separate it from all the evils and sins of the Catholics on the continent. But when the French had the same combination of financial problems, elite divisions, and uh, unhappy peasants and Parisians, they interpret it very differently. They started arguing that uh, this is the fault of the aristocrats. Yes, Catholicism is bad and we have to get rid of the church too, which they did, but they saw the church and the hereditary monarchy and the hereditary aristocracy as an obstacle to a world in which reward would go to merit. And they saw the uh, creation of a new world that was more rational and scientific and did away with a lot of the kind of old customary and superstitious rules. That was their vision for the future. And that's what brought the French Revolution in the direction it did. Uh, the Turks had a different system, of course, there's an Islamic country. So they went back to an Islamic vision of a proper social order. They said, the reason we're having all these uh, rural rebellions and divisions at court is that the Sultan has gotten corrupt and gone away from the Islamic order in which uh, we need to have Islamic courts set the law. We need to have a balanced relation between the uh, landowning elite and the peasantry. And we need, and this is very interesting, we need to reinforce the strength of our Islamic learning. But the result of that is they didn't print Western books. They turned their back on Western science, and that created kind of a, a deficit for the Ottoman Empire that lasted into the 19th century. So it's, it's fascinating when you see how every society, every point in history, they come up against similar problems that are often brought by these demographic waves. And then they try and craft solutions given the only mental framework that they have. Right. And so we like, you know, now in the world today, we see it's authoritarianism versus democracy, because that's what we inherited from the Cold War. And that's still the lens we're looking at. And in some ways, these revolutions, they also kind of came back through and came into a kind of they wanted kind of a certainty. So an, maybe an authoritarian uh, response. Would you agree with that, that at, at the latter ends of these revolutionary upheavals, they're moving towards kind of a more. Like uh, the French Revolution ended with Napoleon. The uh, Ottomans become more Islamic. Uh, the uh, England becomes more Puritan, very uh, rigid Puritanism. How do you see that? Is that a similar kind of authoritarianism? How do you perceive those patterns in these revolutionary uh, events? Well, the book makes the argument that once a revolution begins, there's a fight to define where is it going to go? What's the outcome going to be? These things aren't written in stone in advance. It's not like, oh, yes, the destination, the destination of our revolution is known in advance, and we just have to 
go through the steps to get there. That's not how it works. Once you upend the existing political and social order and start a revolution, it's not easy to restore social order and put together some set of institutions that people believe in so that they can go back to their business and feel confident and, and no longer stirred up to fight. So there are two ways to do this. One way is to restore a kind of uh, conservative customary regime. And this is what happens in Turkey and in China and to some degree in Japan. The other way is to argue for a kind of um, what Christians would call a, uh, you know, a, a redemption, a, a revival, a kind of almost post-apocalyptic transformation, right? A, a like second an awakening or something, yeah. great awakening. And, and so Western countries have been more prone to see revolutionary movements as an opportunity to say, we're going to escape what happened before and create something new. But even to create something new, someone has to develop the design and then give the orders and force people to follow it. Because it's not easy to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm gonna give up everything that guided my life before and, and follow a new set of rules. So even revolutions that aim to be transformative and say, we're gonna capture the national will and the public spirit, they end up falling back on authoritarian mechanisms to put those new institutions in place. Now you might say, well, what about the American Revolution? Wasn't that democratic? And wasn't the French Revolution? Didn't it start out democratic before Napoleon? A lot of revolutions, yes, start out wanting to be democratic, but it's hard to stay that way. Even in England, the mother of parliaments gave way to the military rule of Oliver Cromwell because he couldn't keep the country together otherwise. The fights in parliament were too great. The things that helped the American Revolution be an exception to this rule is you had 13 different states, and each of those states was kind of small enough to manage their own affairs, and they had set up um, democratic uh, assemblies during the Revolutionary War or before it, and they were able to manage on a small level. None of those local governments had to reconcile national level grievances and problems. Now, the fact that they stayed 13 separate states meant that other things didn't work well. And so after another decade, this confederation gave way to a constitutional convention. And then there were huge debates and huge compromises about how do we develop a constitution that will give us a strong federal government? And you know that was a contentious process. And even the federal government, you know, wasn't perfect. We ended up having a civil war where everything collapsed, you know, just 60 years later. But at the time of the American Revolution, the fact that you had 13 different governments that were already in pretty good control of their local areas helped avoid the kind of all or nothing national government that usually turns uh, into authoritarianism. Right. Yeah, no, it is fascinating. And then you talk also about population growth or demographic is a bad, I mean, you can look at it as a blessing or a curse. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, some people are afraid of revolution. They say it's violent, it's disorderly, and, and it's better to, you know, to take your change gradually. Uh, other people say, well, you know, if you do your change gradually, it's not going to happen at all. You're going to get to a point where you're at an impasse and it uh, becomes a violent collapse or nothing. Uh, I understand both of those perspectives. 
And the fact is when you have a demographic bulge for several generations, you have some disruption in the normal flow of, of things. Economic institutions come under strain. A lot of popular and elite, elite groups get aggrieved. It's hard to figure a way out. And um, it's rare that you find a way and it requires both uh, the willingness to give a lot up and the willingness to compromise. I think you know the best recent example to show how difficult this is is South Africa under apartheid. While Nelson Mandela was in prison, he were somehow remained optimistic that they would find a solution. But to those of us on the outside, it looked like the hard resistance of the apartheid government and the growing movement of violence in the, in the townships uh, and in the countryside, uh, which was getting uglier and uglier and getting more radical, uh, was going to lead to bigger and bi bigger and bigger military confrontations. How was that avoided? Somehow the white apartheid government of South Africa reached out to Nelson Mandela and said, we'll pull you out of prison if you'll agree to a deal to peacefully change the constitution and give black and colored people a vote and yet leave the property distribution largely in place. You know, we, we don't want to have a tax uh, on white farms. We don't have a kind of the Zimbabwe disaster. And somehow the moderate whites and the moderates in the black liberation movement were able to isolate their extremists on both sides because they said, you know, if we let these extremists take over, we're going to have a civil war that's going to destroy all of us. So all of us have to give up something. The whites gave up their complete political dominance. The black liberation group gave up their insistence that all property be taken away from whites and redistributed to the blacks. And they managed to cobble together a deal. No, it wasn't perfect. Yes, the government of South Africa today is still struggling in a lot of ways, but it's a better outcome than a bloody revolution that would have killed millions. Good point. Yeah, very much so. And I think you, at the end of your book, you talk about the decline of the U.S. and selfish elites and things like that. So that would be one example where the elites were purely, supremely selfish that created a revolution, at least in South Africa. What do you see, uh, as we're kind of at 40 minutes, what do you see the current global situation and how, how will people uh, address these problems? You talk about demographic changes coming out of sub-Saharan Africa. So how are people going to address the problems of revolution and rebellion in the present and future? Well, you know, the funny thing is, the way I came to the demographic thesis in this book was kind of backwards. That is to say, I had been studying revolutions for decades. As I said, trying to figure out what are the common elements? I thought, oh, okay, government debt, uh, elite conflict uh, over positions, uh, surplus of educated young people, a younger population, a huge increase in the demand for housing and, and education and rising expenses for the government that it has trouble meeting. So I, I see those happening, you know, and I, and I say, but what caused that? And I really didn't have an answer until I signed up to be a teaching assistant for a course on American demographics. And I didn't know anything about demography at the time, but I had a really good um, professor who guided me in the course and taught me what I needed to know. What the course was all about was how the baby boom in America in the 50s and 60s 
was leading to the upheavals of uh, the late 60s and uh, you know the hippie movement, the anti-war movement, uh, the violence in the streets in Chicago and Kent State, things that we may not remember as much now, but the 60s were a mess. <laughs> and when, when I got into the data and looked at, well, what was happening in the 60s, it was all of these same things that I had been studying in my work on revolutions. It was the inflation, the state debts, the expansion of the young people, the filling up of the universities, uh, the anxiety about change. It was much milder than what I was looking at. And I think that's because America in the 60s was still a richer and more flexible society than most of the great monarchies and empires I look at in my book. But the family resemblances were there. So I said, gosh, I need to go back now and look at all of these cases of revolution that I've studied and see if there was a population surge prior to the events. And sure enough, uh, not only was there a documented population surge, but it was possible to tie together the timing of population increase over two or three generations, subsequent inflation, state debts, elite competition, it all fit, and and I had a book, <laughs> there you go. and and that's what I wrote. But then at, at the end, I thought, okay, now are we in a world that's totally removed from this, or could we see some of the same issues? And it struck me that you know, in places that are still struggling with um, economic development and uh, trying to escape the kind of agrarian rigidity and get into the modern world, you would have exactly the same patterns. And so the Arab Spring was almost a perfect fit. Right. But then when I said, well, but what about these rich industrial societies? Uh, is America and Europe immune from this? Right. Um, you know, have we you know, escaped this? And it turned out, if, if I looked at the trends, uh, you know what? The baby boom in America was followed by a stagnation of real wages and a growth in inequality, just like in other societies. It turns out it's hard to beat these basic market forces when you have a huge surge of people going into the labor force. Employers are, hey, we got lots of labor. We, you know, we can, uh, you know, keep wages down. We can uh, appropriate the profits for ourselves. And so, you know, the, one of the results of the baby boom is a shift in the economy, so that more wealth and income goes to the kind of upper 10% and much of the rest of the population, especially that with less training and, and fewer credentials, gets left behind. And of course, that politically leads to the same kind of grievances we've seen before. And then faced with those problems and those grievances, you're going to have some elites who say, I love inequality. It's good for me. I deserve it. I made it on my own. Give me more. And then you have other elites who say, you know, this looks kind of unjust and unfair. And there are a lot of people who I think need a chance and we really should redistribute wealth from the rich to the poor. And, um, you know, we did this actually in the 40s when we had, um, in the wake of World War II, the top income tax rates were up to 80, 90%. Wow. And the elites were willing to accept that as the price of saving the free world. But now you have elites saying, hey, you know, I'm paying 15% taxes on my uh, carried uh, income, hedge fund income. Uh, don't push it from 15 to 25. Right. That would be grossly unfair. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I would say in the United, 
And in the United in the States, United you States, have all you have of these things that you put together, together in your book presently. presently. Grievances, Grievances. Uh, kind of a, a sense of unjustness, um, uh, elite kind of bickering, uh, financial problems. It's all there right now. So people should you read know, this book and see how it, it plays is, out. Yeah, should, should read the book uh, not to get scared, but to see <laughs> how countries have, have failed to overcome this or what was necessary to overcome this in the past, because there is a way out of it. Right. And uh, I actually think that a lot of the things in um, President Biden's plan, uh, investing in people, rebuilding infrastructure, trying to get more jobs, more support for families, those are the kind of things that um, would be helpful in reducing the polarization and the kind of hatred and distrust of government. But the, the obstacle is getting elites to agree. <laughs> we see right. this even within the Democratic Party, right? Right. And, and I mean, uh, you talk about that, the population against the state. I think that a lot of people are dissatisfied the way the government's working, just it's functioning. So that's yeah. also another problem. So people can check that out. But we're well, almost like at 45 yeah. minutes, Jack. Is there sure. anything you'd like to summarize or, or I missed or anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? The only thing I'd like to remind people is um, there's no escaping the world that we're in. You know, we, we might want to go back to a simpler time and say, oh, you know, I wish things were like they were in the 1950s or 60s. Uh, I wish it would be you know, nice to see how it was when America was the only superpower leading country in the world. But if we want to be prosperous and successful in the future, and I think America can still be the leading country in the world for a long time to come, we have to overcome our internal divisions and find things that we all agree on, whatever they are. Because if we can't agree on some basics, then the other problems we're facing, whether they're climate or racial injustice or income inequality are gonna be insoluble. We're gonna find ourselves on the opposite sides of these problems with no common ground from which to craft a solution. So read the book, look at how the human race keeps making the same mistakes, right. how we keep going through the same experience and uh, see that, hey, but there are solutions. The human race is still here. We can get to a better place. Let's think about how to do it together. And that's yeah, what that's I like. a, Excellent. That's a great way to wrap it up. Again, the title of the book is Revolution and Rebellion in the Early Modern World, Population Change and State Breakdown in England, France, Turkey, and China, 1600 to 1850. First edition published 1991. Most recent one is 2016. I'll have a link to the book in the show notes so you can pick it up. Is, is Amazon the best place to get it? Or yeah, Amazon's that... easy, sure. And, and again, it's Dr. Jack A. Goldstone. Uh, thank you so much, Jack. Appreciate it. What a fascinating conversation. Again, a real pleasure. And I hope your listeners enjoy it and hope they enjoy the book. I'm sure they will. Stay there. Stay there. Okay. Let me end the broadcast.